Good morning. So what would a life seminar be without a, a presentation on IFRS 4 Phase 2? I think we've had, what, probably 11 years to actually have the opportunity to talk about IFRS 4 Phase 2, and no doubt we're going to have a few more. Um, so we have two presenters this morning from PwC. Uh, firstly, we have Carolyn and, and then Alex. So Carolyn's going to give us um, just a general progress update, I think. And then Alex is going to talk about participating contracts. And I should add, when we talk participating contracts, it's not only the smooth bonus and with profit contracts that we've just had in the previous session. That's a far wider definition, but I'm sure Alex will talk about that. Um, so firstly, just a little bit about the two presenters. So Carolyn is, or Caroline has been an actual consultant for over eight years. She's working for PwC in South Africa and also in the UK. Uh, much of her experience has been in the life industry. Um, she says she now divides her time between insurance projects and other areas that she's passionate about, including healthcare, people, and the wider public sector. And then Alex is a consulting actuary, uh, primary focus, life health, reinsurance, microinsurance, consumer credit insurance. Historically, um, he's given particular focus to small and medium-sized companies. Um, he's been working as a consulting actuary in terms of financial reporting for a while. Um, so he's developed a keen interest in IFRS 4 Phase 2. And Alex has one wife, three children, and a few hobbies, some of which do not relate to actual technical matters. So I presume um, that means that his wife and three children don't relate to technical actual matters, and his hobbies do. Um, but uh, yeah, first up, Caroline. Good morning. Um, thank you, Gary. I just want to clarify that I also have non-actuarial hobbies as well, um, and apart from making slides. Um, so it's a, a bit of a, a difficult um, topic to decide how to, to pitch it, um, given that some people might not be that familiar with it, um, but then I also see that we've got some um, very serious experts in the room. Um, so I'll try to kind of uh, cater to a range of needs. Um, but also realizing that we, we're now a little bit behind. Um, there's probably no one in the room that needs a complete introduction to what this is, but just very briefly, um, we've got an international financial reporting standard on insurance contracts, if it was four, um, but it says very little currently about how you actually calculate liabilities and profit. Um, it's always, or at least for this century, it's been the intention of the International Accounting Standards Board to define principles on measurement, which basically just means how you calculate liabilities and profit. Um, but getting there has taken a very long time, um, as Gary has mentioned. Um, and the obvious issue is that there's now diversity of practices across countries, um, but then also with the, with the methodologies that people are currently using, um, there are a lot of issues, that, some of which are shown on the slide. Um, probably for the, the largest proportion of the audience, the question is more um, kind of, are we there yet? Or as you've gathered from this presentation and also having um, read the agenda, um, you might realize that we're not quite there yet. And so then the question is, well, why not? And when are we going to get there? Um, now just over two years ago when I was in the UK, I did a a presentation titled Are We There Yet? Um, which covered both Solvency II and IFRS. Um, and it was just a, a few months after we'd experienced the big freeze of Solvency II, um, as well as a meteorological one. Um, 
basically there had been quite a few delays in the process already, but suddenly the whole thing just had to um, grind to a halt, at least temporarily, and all due to one technical issue. Um, and the sense I got that people didn't really see this coming, um, basically realized that the discount rate was actually um, a little bit more of a complex area to define, and especially given practical considerations. So um, under IFRS, participating contracts, um, which are technically defined as any contracts where the benefit is somehow linked um, to the return on an underlying item, so for example, a portfolio of assets, um, these remind me a little bit about the discount rate for Solvency II, because we're very far into the development of the standard, and yet there's still a big question mark over how to treat them. Um, and yet the principles for their measurement are really fundamental because they make up a huge proportion of balance sheets um, in probably every country. So um, the purpose of today's presentation is just to give an overview of what's been developed to date, so particularly for those who are kind of uh, not so familiar with the topic or have at least lost track of um, what's been happening. Um, and I will also just put this into um, the context of the process to uh, develop the standard um, and then also just try to give a, a little bit of a view of what still needs to happen to, fin to finalize it um, and how long that might take. Uh, then I'll hand over to Alex who's going to um, cover participating contracts which uh, are a lot of, uh, answer a lot of the question as to why we're not there yet. Um, he'll also just give some insights into what it, it, the current proposals might mean for the South African industry um, and also some of the response from the industry to date. Um, but if there's time at the end, then we'd also welcome comments on that from the audience um, and questions as well, as long as they're not too technical. So... Um, when Alex and I first started discussing this presentation, I suggested that we don't include the historical timeline slide to save those that have been sitting here for 11 years and seeing the same thing over again, but slowly, slowly growing. Um, but there's just a couple of points that might be useful to highlight um, uh, around where we are currently. So there's been two drafts of the standard that's been issued by the ISB for comment. Um, one in 2010 and one in 2013. Though the second one, there was only a limited number of areas where the ISB actually invited comment on. And since then, they have um, discussed these issues, plus a couple of others, um, and made tentative decisions on um, how they want to treat these areas going forward. Um, but the one area where they haven't made any decisions so far is around participating contracts. Um, they have said, once we decide what we're going to do for these contracts, we will have to go back to the model for non-participating contracts um, and just check that it still makes sense and is consistent. So there are um, areas that might still change. Um, and then there is one area, which I'll cover a little bit later, where they have made decisions about it um, so far, but there is a lot of unhappiness from industry. Um, so it's another area that might still change. And, and again, it also might have a, a knock-on impact from the model for participating contracts. Um, so th this slide is also aimed at those who are not so familiar with the topic. Um, so I'll just run through it um, very quickly. 
you'll hopefully recognize these as kind of key components that you would need to define in coming up with a framework for how you measure liabilities and how you determine the profit that can be released from those liabilities over time. Um, when I first started working, there was a lot of um, debate around the valuation philosophy and how you might fit into this fair value world of accounting. Um, is, is the fair value maybe a, um, a, an exit value, which is a, an amount that you could transfer the contract for? Is it an entry value, which is based on current pricing? But um, fortunately, we landed on something very much like SAM or Solvency 2, which is trying to value the cash flows of the liability from the insurer's perspective, um, uh, taking into account the insurer's view of having to actually fulfill the contract. Um, and like SAM, the basis is a, a best estimate actuarial liability, but um, from an economic perspective, it needs to be adjusted for risk. So um, the technical wording in IFRS is compensation that the insurer requires for bearing the uncertainty. Um, but unlike Solvency 2 and SAM, the pattern um, of profit recognition is really the key issue rather than trying to come up with a, an economic view of solvency. So um, it's been decided to be kind of consistent with accounting and other industries not to recognize profit upfront when you sell a contract, so to have no day one gain, but rather to recognize the profit over the life of the contract as you provide the service, which in a lot of cases is just providing insurance coverage. Um, and the mechanism to do this is to add an extra margin to the liability, which is now called the contractual service margin, or CSM. And that will basically be set such that it will just offset any day one gain. And then that CSM is grown with interest. The accounting term is to accrete with interest, um, but then to be amortized over time, and that basically allows profit to be recognized. Um, and then discounting, again, uh, like Solvency 2 or SAM, um, discount rates are appropriate for the liability, um, not necessarily taking into account the assets that you're holding. Um, and then, consistent with these principles, there is one limited case where you can apply some simplifications. So um, this slide basically firstly summarizes um, what the liability looks like under this approach. Um, you've got your best estimate, the uh, orange block on the left, and then your risk adjustment, and then your contractual service margin. Now, I've already described a, a little bit of the mechanics of how profit gets recognized over the life of a contract, but this is just filling in some of the additional detail, especially around um, assumption changes and experience variances. Before I get to explaining that, I just want to explain very quickly what's going on on the right-hand side for people that's not familiar with um, current accounting practice. Um, so in IFRS, you've got a statement of comprehensive income, which includes the income statement or profit and loss, but it also includes some additional lines below that, which are termed other comprehensive income. Now, I asked one of my accounting colleagues last week for a nice, eloquent way of introducing what is OCI all about, and he kind of chuckled because he said, well, there isn't really an overarching framework that's been developed for this thing, as there should be, um, but it's basically being used kind of as seen appropriate um, under various standards. I think the idea is basically um, it's there to kind of remove some 
unnecessary volatility that might go through the income statement, um, particularly if it's like economic or market um, impacts that you wouldn't actually expect to realize in practice. So as an example, if you um, are investing in bonds, um, but it's not your kind of uh, main aim to trade these bonds and um, rather you, you may be holding them to match a liability, you might just trade them to um, just to rebalance your portfolio, then you, what you might choose to do is to recognize the changes in the market value of that bond through OCI. Um, the, the key point is, though, there are very um, defined circumstances under IFRS when you can actually make use of this. Um, and it's kind of not uh, really um, fully discretionary. If you do make use of OCI, you would always need to justify why you're using it. So in my example with the bonds, you would be justifying under IFRS 9 um, that this is basically your business model for, for investing. Okay, so back to what's going on in the rest of the slide. Um, I've already covered the pink block in the middle at the top, which is basically the release of the CSM over time. That would go just through to your income statement. And similarly, as your risk adjustment unwinds, that also goes through to the income statement. I'm going to skip the yellow blocks quickly and go down to the orange block at the bottom. That's effectively experience variances. It's uh, differences in your cash flow compared with what you expected um, that's relating to past coverage. Um, and those will also go through your income statement. Now, on the far left, um, we've basically got assumption changes. So it's changes in, in cash flows um, compared with what you expected that's relating to future coverage. Um, and on both the risk adjustment and the best estimate, those changes are used to adjust the CSM, so they won't impact the, the income statement initially. So, for example, if we now suddenly expect mortality to be higher, our best estimate liability goes up, our CSM goes down, um, as long as it's not already negative, it can't go negative, um, so upfront, there isn't an impact, but now we have a lower CSM. So therefore, over time, as we amortize that CSM, we're going to be recognizing um, less profit. Um, and I guess it's, it's a smoothing mechanism, but it's been justified because we're saying, well, these assumptions relate to the future coverage, so let's recognize the impact of them um, over the period of the future coverage. Um, there's just two other things I want to highlight is, um, oh sorry, we need to cover the yellow blocks. Um, so here is where there is a choice to make use of OCI. Um, either what you can do is recognize both the unwind of your liability and any changes in discount rates through the investment result in the income statement, or you can use the discount rate that applied at inception of the contract to measure your unwind and then the impact of changes in the discount rate would go through OCI. Now, obviously, that choice is going to depend on the assets that's backing it and the accounting choices that you make for those assets. Um, you might think, okay, this is great. If we're not going to use OCI, then we don't have to worry about inception discount rates. But currently, the proposals are actually that whatever your accounting policy choice is, the interest that you add or accrete on the CSM each period would have to be at the inception discount rate. And on top of that, 
When you calculate those adjustments to the CSM based on the impact of your assumption changes, you would also need to use the inception discount rate. So if you think practically you're doing your step runs for your assumption changes, then you need to do those step runs at the inception discount rate for each contract. So that um, obviously makes things very onerous for everybody, so possibly an area that could still change. Um, then I'm going to skip the next slide, which is really just summarizing the slide before and highlighting those, those points about having to use the inception discount rate for certain calculations, regardless of whether you use OCI or not. Now, I wanted to avoid um, any practical detail, but this is actually quite a, um, an important point. Basically, the unit of account or the level of aggregation just refers to when... Um, do you, or when can you group policies for the purpose of, of performing calculations? Um, it's important for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, it can add to the complexity of your calculations if you have to do things at a more granular level. Um, it is an issue for participating contracts. If you just think conceptually, you've got, uh, in sort of with profits type policies, you've got groups of policies that are sharing in the profits of a, um, a pool of assets. Um, and it's also the, the one area where just on its own there's still a lot of unhappiness from industry and so it might still change. Um, this slide is just trying to give an overview of what the current proposals are for the general model. Um, a key starting point is um, that the ISB has defined um, a portfolio of contracts as being a group of contracts that are subject to similar risks and managed together as a single pool. That definition just gets used in a couple of places in the proposals. Um, the uh, diagram is just basically trying to give you sort of a schematic of how you might group policies, um, starting with this portfolio, um, but then also um, recognizing that you might need to divide policies by cohort if you're needing to uh, do calculations at an inception discount rate. Um, and then possibly even at a more granular level. The table on the right-hand side is, is basically setting out what the current proposals are, and I just want to highlight a few key points. Um, on initial recognition of the CSM, um, the ISB has said that you can't offset profit and loss-making contracts, and that the actual objective of the standard is to provide principles for the measurement of an individual contract. So um, that obviously uh, you, you would need to value contracts individually um, unless when aggregating contracts you can still meet this objective of measuring an individual contract. Um, when you amortize the CSM, um, there's no stated principles for doing that. Um, but I think the thinking is that you would um, still need to group policies that have a similar pattern of release, and you would need to justify what you're doing. So that might mean even going down to a level where you group um, policies by term. And then obviously if you're having to do calculations at an inception discount rate, then you are going to have to identify policies um, by at least a similar inception rate. Um, so perhaps grouping policies by um, cohort in terms of the quarter in which they incepted.
Then um, there's a couple of other key areas of the standards which I thought it might be worth touching on, but I think in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over them because um, I think I've covered the key um, points around measurement that um, also impact participating contracts. I guess what I was hoping to highlight to these topics is just um, the additional demands that will be placed on insurers in implementing the standard. Um, for example, in presentation, there is now a new uh, definition of what um, revenue is. You can't um, just take the premiums that you've received, which might be what most long-term insurers currently do and call that revenue, because technically that's not the portion of premiums in total that you've earned over the period. So there's now a, a whole calculation of what that revenue is. Um, and also additional disclosure requirements, having to give a lot of detail of the building blocks of the liability, reconciling them um, from one period to the other, and then also reconciling them to this new income statement that has this new um, definition of revenue. But the one point that I will um, obviously cover is around timelines. That's answering, or, well, trying to answer the question of when is this actually going to all be finalized and implemented. So um, this slide is really giving the earliest possible scenario, um, both for the standard to be finalized and then for it to be implemented. The ISB has said that they won't issue a final draft of the standard before the end of the year, and it could well be into next year. It's also possible that they issue a, um, it's called a staff draft of the um, standard once they've finalized it, but that Basically what happens is it gives a little bit of time for really serious issues or um, errors or omissions to be highlighted by people. Um, and then they've also said it will be at least three years from the date when they issue the final standard until, they, um, uh, until the standard will become effective. So that would make 2019 the earliest effective date. Um, in this scenario, um, that sounds like a long way off, but you would obviously have to have um, your opening balance sheet for your comparatives two years prior to that. And there's a lot to do in the meantime, um, just in terms of implementation. Um, some insurers in Europe already have programs in place um, performing detailed gap analyses, even doing design. But I think um, a lot of of insurers are working more towards a 2020 implementation date. And there's also a num number of other standards that are being implemented that impact insurers. So this could also um, impact the implementation date. For example, IFRS 9 and IFRS 15. Um, one proposal has been that there needs to be a three-year gap between implementing IFRS 9, uh, yeah, IFRS 9 and the new insurance contract standard. Given that that's currently at 2018, that would make the implementation date 2021. But definitely don't give that uh, as a guarantee that that's the latest possible date. So I've hopefully covered the first two points on the agenda. Um, I'm now going to hand over to Alex, who will um, cover the discussion on participating contracts, um, and then hopefully um, also questions and comments if there's time at the end.
thanks, Caroline, for a, a very useful and, and, and a thorough introduction to what, what we finally get to, which is the, the, the meat of this presentation. Um, to just one qualification. The, the participating contracts and the treatment thereof, nothing has been quite decided yet by the IASB. So, so that, that is just a qualification that I have to put that you can't bank on what I'm going to present. However, if you go onto the IFRS uh, website, um, you can actually not only download the papers being presented at each of the ISB meetings where they discuss these matters, but you can also listen to the audio recordings. It's publicly available. And that is quite revealing because that shows you what the board agrees on and what they don't agree on yet and what they're still going to consider. Right, so just um, another just a historical reflection. In Exposure Draft 2 that came out in 2013, the proposed uh, treatment was called the mirroring approach or the mirroring uh, exception, uh, which had a, a bit of a mixed response from, from markets. Uh, mostly outside of South Africa, it, 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 uh, the markets were not in favor of it. I think in South Africa, you could say there was a, a bit of a mixed response. Um, and I guess the main criticism was that it, it was quite limiting in scope, which contracts would, would, it would qualify for. And, and, and secondly, there would be a lot of contracts that you would generally consider to be participating in nature, which, which may not have qualified for, uh, for, for, for the mirroring approach. However, the marine approach is um, likely to make a bit of a comeback, and I'll, I'll get to that a bit later on. So, I think the right question to ask first is, why don't we just use the general model as explained by Caroline for participating contracts? And the main argument against it is, is a logical one, which is that, um, well, first of all, this, if, that, if that was the approach, the way it's defined by the ISB is that it's a share of economic returns model, and the entity's profit and loss from those returns from investments and payments to policyholders. So it's really reflected in the profits and loss. And is that appropriate? So this is not really the company's assets. It's policyholders' assets, which is invested on their behalf. It's a service that you provide to policyholders. And you will ultimately, as an entity, as a shareholder, uh, receive a return for providing that service. So that's the logic behind it. And if you follow the principles of, say, accrual in accounting, then you know, showing the profit and loss from investing policyholder assets on your, on your income statement is perhaps not fair. And further to that, you could argue the entity is merely acting as a, in, in a fiduciary capacity to, to policyholders and is earning a fee for doing so. So the logical conclusion then, what is drawn, is that, uh, so what do you do as, as an entity? You provide a service and you get a fee for it. And that is what is being proposed at the moment. <clears throat> it's called the variable fee for service model. Uh, where the fee is really a share of returns from the underlying items, less certain expenses, related costs, such as, for example, providing investment guarantees. And the, the attraction to this model is that it's, it's transparent, uh, it is understandable, um, and it's more akin to the actual contractual agreement uh, that, that you have with, with your policyholder. Now, having defined at a very high level what the proposed model is about, um, the first and most important thing to do is to define, so to what policies does it apply? And this is also what Gary in his introduction was alluding to, is that this does not necessarily relate to discretionary participating policyholders, not only them and not necessarily all of them. 
The first uh, part of the, uh, the, the definition of scope is that this, the, the contract must specify that the policyholders participate in what is called a clearly identified pool of underlying items. Um, the reason why that is important is because you cannot really define what is this fee that you, that you can earn and you can't really model it if you could just change the underlying items that the policyholder would participate in. For that reason, um, certain types of products which you would generally consider to be discretionary and participating in, as, as you would conventionally think of it, such as the so-called universal life products that, that, that you find in, in North America, would be excluded because they don't use a clearly identified pool of underlying items from which they then provide discretionary uh, uh, benefits that's added to, to the policyholder. The second and third criteria, also very important, is that the entity must expect that a substantial proportion of cash flows from the, from the contract will vary with changes in those underlying items. And secondly, that the policyholder may expect to receive an amount representing a substantial share of the returns from those underlying items. The problem there, of course, is the word substantial, because it could mean different things to different people. So in, in, in our world, when we think about with profit 90-10 type policies, I think it's fair to, to conclude that 90% is substantial. Um, however, there are some variations in, in other markets, such as the so-called Chinese 70-30 policies. And whether that's still substantial or not is, is still something that, that I think the ISP will be confronted on. Right, and then just further to that, what does it all mean? As I said, it does not necessarily include all participating contracts or rather discretionary benefit policies and it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, exclude others that's non-discretionary. So what is still uh, expected to be treated under the general model, what is deemed to be non-participating is the conventional type of insurance policy that we all know, but also products that of which the cash flows may vary with, with returns from underlying items and perhaps even in a substantial manner but not from a clearly identified portfolio, such as, as I said, the US-style universal life products. So what would qualify under variable fee-for-service would be, as we know, with profit smooth bonus policies, which is also happens to be discretionary in nature to a degree, but also non-discretionary products such as unit-linked or index-linked products. And the other distinction that is important to make, although both qualify for the variable fee-for-service model, is whether you actually hold the underlying items or not. So I would think, although I'm not actually in working in one of the life companies with, with participating contracts, that it would be difficult not to hold the underlying items for smooth bonus or with profit bonus policies. But when it comes to unit link policies, I think it is possible not to actually hold the underlying items. And how that affects your treatment in the variable fee-for-service model is something that I will get back to a little bit later on. Now, finally, getting to, to the meat of, of what this all means, or what this is supposed to mean, um, I'm going to go to th through specific items in, in, in the, the general model, and then just highlight where it is likely to be treated differently for um, contracts that qualify for the variable fee-for-service model. So the first point is just the building blocks. You still have the same building blocks. That's your present value of your expected cash flows, you've got your risk adjustment, and you've got your contractual service margin. The difference being that the contractual service margin has a different definition here, because this now includes the insurer's share of the returns, if it is a share of returns or if it's a fee, but it is expressed as a present value of expected variable fees, less related costs. 
And what I mean by related costs, that would be costs such as, for example, providing the, 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 the uh, investment guarantees in it, if, 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 if they exist. Uh, it wouldn't be including the actual other costs which would, you would think is related to the, uh, uh, the actual present value of expected cash flows of, of, of managing that. So it's just the related costs. So we need to think about the changes in the value of assets supporting the insurer's share. That is not really an applicable point for, for the general model because there are no underlying items being participated in by definition. However, you would have corresponding assets, and that's simply treated according to IS39 or, or um, eventually IFRS9. Um, that's on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, a change in value of the asset supporting the insurer's share is simply recognized in the CSM. So if you think about the logic, what we're doing here, we're managing assets on, be on behalf of the policyholder. Uh, the, the, you as the entity have some entitlement because you, you also participate in the, those underlying assets and you, you get a fee for it, therefore it has to be recognized in the CSM because that is what the, the CSM consists of. Then we think about the change in value of, of embedded guarantees in the product. Again, that has to be recognized in the CSM because this is related to the costs of providing the, that, that you incur in providing the, the, the service of, of investments with guarantees to policyholders. So that's why it has to be recognized in the CSM. The difference between that and the general model so I have not entirely clear. So I guess it's in theory possible to have embedded guarantees and options in a non-participating or rather a contract that doesn't qualify for variable fee for service. Um, and the, the board likes to distinguish between non-financial and financial causes. But they haven't been quite clear on exactly how that's going to happen because I think that would be quite difficult. And then on item four, when you talk about non-financial assumptions, uh, they, it's the same. So, when it comes to assumptions relating to future experience, it's recognized in the CSM. And where it relates to past experience, as Caroline has said, uh, that will simply drop into your profit and loss. The fifth point there is an interesting one, and that's with regards to how you allocate the CSM over time into your profit and loss. In other words, this smooth earnings that you want to reflect from the CSM. So, for the general model, for non-participating contracts, the ruling or the decision made was that you allocate it according to the basis, uh, on the basis of passage of time. Now this is, uh, when I dug into this in a bit more detail, it's just where I realized again that accountants and actuaries are not from the same planet. Because uh, passage of time, if you talk to a good, you know, a decent technical actuary that's worth his salt, he'll tell you, well, what does that mean? And I'll come up with four different ways of modeling this thing. It could be straight line, it could be straight line discounted, it could be uh, decremented, uh, and so forth. However, it's clear to me that the ISP is not really uh, entertaining any thoughts about being too specific about this. Now, coming back to what this means for the variable fee-for-service model, as it stands currently, they're saying we use, again, this passage of time measure. Uh, however, in the variable fee-for-service uh, world, the the, the, the value that you add to clients and the service that you provide could change over time. So what, what is the big driver of the value that you provide? It could be more life care initially if you have a recurring premium unit link policy, fewer funds initially, but perhaps a bigger percentage that's, that's expenses and so forth. So how do you, how do you reflect that? So if you, if you listen to the, what is being said at the ISB's uh, uh, education sessions, it is clear 
that they're not all on the same page on this. I think at the moment, tentatively and reluctantly, they've decided to stick with this passage of time definition. But it's one item that, it, that, it, that may still be reopened and, 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 and debated further. Specifically, how it may differ. Five minutes. Right, so the second slide here. Uh, as Caroline has mentioned, when it comes to the accretion of interest rate on the CSM and the discount rate unlocking CSM, at the moment, for the general model, you have to follow the, the, uh, the, the locked-in rate at inception. And this is opened up for, for policies on the variable fee-for-service model. So you can use the current rate. Again, I think if you consider what the CSM constitutes for, for participating contracts, it makes sense that you should use the current rate. However, what is again clear from what, uh, uh, what the board has discussed, not all of them is entirely happy with using a locked-in rate for, for non-participating contracts. There's certainly a lot of resistance from industry. So what they've decided on is once we finalize the measures for participating contracts, we will look back at what the differences are in the building block uh, approach and, and, and make sure that we're still happy with them. Then the, the other important point I just want to uh, cover here is interest expense, which is an accounting term really for the unwinding of your liability over time and the change in discount rates. And uh, this is where mirroring is making its comeback. If you hold the underlying items, if you actually hold the underlying items, which is part of what, you, what you're participating in, and you follow, then you can follow the 100% mirroring approach. If you follow the accounting policy of fair value through profit and loss, it's simply whatever changes is reflected on the asset side in your profit, in your profit and loss statement, that's what you reflect on the liability side. Nice and easy. Um, if you follow the fair value through OCI, which I think is less likely for South African insurers, but perhaps more common uh, likely in, in, in Europe, where they actually buy a lot of conventional bonds to back their participations, that is where you effectively do 100% mirroring, but the, but, the, but the technique through which you do it is being specified, and that's called the current period book yield approach, where the difference between the book yield and the current rate is still reflected in your OCI. If you move away from that matching if you start not holding the underlying items, that's when you have to start basically just reflecting the impact of not holding the underlying items in your profit and loss. Okay? And that's essentially what I'm saying on the, on, on the left-hand side under interest expense. And again, if you follow the fair value through OCI approach, there's a particular technique that you follow called the effective yield approach. The particular uh, methodology of determining effective yield is still under discussion. Right. Now, the important thing to mention, to, to, to mention here is, let's suppose you hold the underlying items, you follow the mirroring approach, everybody's happy. Now, let's suppose you move away from holding the underlying items, which I guess is a possibility and, and, and not too uncommon in, in, in the unit-linked world. Then you obviously have to move to, what, what, to, to reflecting that mismatch on the profit and loss account. However, you can never go back. The ISP is clear on that. So if you want to follow the mirroring approach and you want to continue following the mirroring approach for that cohort of policies, for, for that unit of account, you have, you have to stick to it uh, in terms of holding the underlying items. Just on reassessment, what that is about is really if the characteristics of the underlying contracts change over time for whatever reason, the, the decision on the general model is now also consistent with the variable fee-for-service model, and that's good news, and that is that there won't be a need of reassessing how to treat those, those contracts. So, uh, Caroline has mentioned the, the debate around unit of account on, on non-participating contracts. I don't have much time to go into too much detail yet, but basically this is just resonating what the two polls we're talking about this morning, is that uh, if you aggregate across cohorts or smooth across intergenerational smoothing, um, 
that is a problem because the objective, as Caroline also mentioned, is to measure individual contracts. So when you start aggregating across cohorts, that, 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 that creates some difficulty in how you present results. So the ISB is not fond of that, but they are at least listening and they will explore this further. Then I would just like to highlight the various uh, outstanding items. And bear with me, I'm not going to go completely sequentially. And Gary, this is my last slide, so just so that you know. Um, I'm going to cover transition first, uh, because that's only the only really big theme that's outstanding. And the reason why it's outstanding is because for participating contracts, you would still first have to come up with a final measure before you can decide, okay, how you're going to get there, <clears throat> which is transition. Um, so it will happen, it's just not being discussed yet because it, it, it will come after they've, they've decided where they're landing. Um, then just to identify, I've covered the unit of account for participating contract, that's item one. Item three, I've covered the allocation of CSM over profit and loss, which is an outstanding item, whether it should be passage of time or not. And then there's the unit of account uh, debate for non-participating contracts as well as the various other aspects of the general model that may still be reconsidered once they've identified where the differences, the final differences are between the general model and, and the, uh, the, the adaptation of the general model for variable fee-for-service uh, model. The one point that I haven't mentioned yet is point number two. So that's why I haven't gone sequentially through it because it, it's, it's worth highlighting. Um, so if you have instruments in your underlying uh, items, if you have derivative instruments in there with which you, start, you manage the, the underlying items that's being participated in between policy on the shelf, there's no issue there. If for whatever reason, either practical or perhaps in, in some markets, uh, re regulatory reasons why you may not have uh, derivative instruments within the underlying set of items that's being participated in, you could, for example, use assets or instruments from outside, from a different pile of assets, not from your underlying items, to hedge those funds. And if you do that, unfortunately, as the model stands currently, the, the, the fluctuations in those derivative instruments that you use, not being part of the building block, uh, will show its ugly face in your profit and loss statement. And therefore, you might be hedged overall, but it won't look like it. And uh, this is a, a particular point that the, I can at least give you some comfort that the, the ISB has heard the argument and they recognize it and they will work on, uh, or they will try at least work on a solution for it. All right, so that's more or less where we are. Oh, perhaps just one more thing I want to mention just uh, on, on, around timelines time is that the point I'd like to highlight here is besides transition, the other items are pretty much detailed issues as opposed to big theme issues. And, 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 and these are the points that the board has recognized they're still not in agreement on. Therefore, I think if you read between the lines, it's clear that a lot of progress has been made over, over the last number of years. And I think the cynics in the room that thinks it's never going to happen um, should, should take note of that. <laughs>